It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility and just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, the news dominating the headlines today is, of course, Afghanistan. Kabul's fallen to the Taliban, which now effectively controls the country. Almost 20 years after they were ousted from power by the US and its allies, there was chaos at the city's airport as thousands rushed to leave the country. Britain's Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says a return by UK troops to the country isn't on the cards. And the focus now is on military flights coming in and out. Border forces joining us to make sure that we accelerate uh, the process to get more Afghans out, uh, which is our obligation. We we flew out uh, 370 staff and British citizens, uh, eligible uh, personnel, uh, yesterday and the day before. That was the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. Well, Boris Johnson said that Afghanistan must not become a breeding ground for terror. Earlier this morning, we spoke to Jonathan Goodhand, Professor of Conflict and Development Studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. We asked him whether he was surprised by how quickly the collapse happened. Everybody is surprised. I mean, Afghan friends on the ground um, and analysts, no one predicted the, 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 the fall this quickly. I mean, there are precedents to look, you know, to, to, to kind of guide us here. I mean, Afghans traditionally have not fighted the losing side. So once the um, once it became clear that, the, you know, a route was taking place, then a lot of people, a lot of the, the military kind of disappeared. People put down their arms. Um, morale disappeared very, very quickly. Well, the rapid takeover of the Taliban has now raised questions about whether in Western intervention was worth it. Well, joining us now is Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East and Chair of the Defence Select Committee. Tobias, thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, this clearly, by any stretch of the imagination, is a failure. Was it a failure both of the US and the UK governments, do you think? It's a failure, firstly by the U.S. government in making the decision to withdraw. Uh, I mean, let's put things in perspective. We weren't discussing Afghanistan over the last three years. There's been a minimalist force, less U.S. forces based in Afghanistan than there are here in the U.K. And they were doing a good job providing oversight for the Afghan forces, top cover, uh, air superiority, intelligence gathering, allowing the Afghans to slowly learn how to take responsibility of their own security matters and, of course, legitimize the Afghan government. As soon as Donald Trump chose to then agree to the release of thousands of uh, Taliban prisoners and 
promised to uh, return American troops before any agreements had actually been put into place. The Taliban simply needed to look at their watches and wait their time. They could make as many promises as they liked. They knew that they would have the upper hand, and that's what we're seeing unfolding here today. It's a disastrous uh, indictment of uh, American foreign policy, and very sad that the West, including the United Kingdom, has just so uh, uh, has given up so quickly as well and followed suit. Two and a half thousand uh, U.S. troops were there, but obviously it was the air power and the, the military power. Could Britain really have stayed in once the U.S. left? It could have done. It wasn't so much um, the American air power. To make it clear that the Americans actually militarily uh, are, are not going anywhere. The CIA will remain, as will special forces. Why? Because we now expect the vacuum in Afghanistan to be filled by terrorist groups once again. And this haunts the United States. So they will keep some form of armed force there. What the Americans were tired of, perhaps, uh, or you know, didn't have the patience for, um, was to see troops abroad in what seemed like their longest ever war. These now, and that's a, a wrong statement to make. We were stabilizing Afghanistan, nurturing it uh, towards a better place. But this tight, went against U.S. foreign policy, which shifted towards great power rivalries of China, Russia, and to some degree, Iran. And ironically, this actually misses the bigger picture, because guess where Afghanistan sits? Between these three very countries. Would it not have made sense to stay close to the Afghan people, given the importance of this bit of global real estate? But to be clear on this, Tobias, I mean, you're chair of the Defence Select Committee. Should Britain, should the MOD have said, well, we're going to stick in there, we'll have a certain number of troops, we will simply remain in Kabul, whatever happens? Well, I don't know what discussions took place uh, and what we did to try and challenge the American decision. I think Joe Biden is going to completely regret this. It will haunt him now, uh, as did uh, the presidents who were involved in, in Vietnam. And to some degree, that will apply to um uh, to Boris Johnson as well. The demise in which we've just retreated, this isolationist approach, some form of us cutting and running, thinking that we can just leave what's happening over there and it's nothing to do with us. I'm afraid this will come to affect us. There will be immediate long-term consequences that we will regret, not just because there's a humanitarian disaster that will unfold with uh, migration problems, displaced people and uh, uh, of course, asylum seekers as well, the terrorist organizations going back, I've mentioned uh, as well. Um, but it'll also uh, question the West's ability to actually under, uh, underscore international um, law and uh, standards. And yet here we had the G7 summit, if you recall, where we had statements such as global Britain and America is back. Well, where is all that today? Nowhere to be seen. Hundreds of British troops um, were seriously injured um, in Afghanistan. What do you say to the family of soldiers who died or were badly hurt? Well, they will be completely demoralised and, and, and understandably so. I visited uh, Helmand many times. I was in the country a dozen times over the last uh, uh, decade or so. Always proud to see the incredible work of providing security, training the Afghan forces. But what I also saw was not enough effort made to win over the hearts and minds of the locals, to rebuild their communities. And that's the schoolboy error that we made, along with imposing a Western-style governance as well. So were we to go back in with a sizable force, you'd firstly see the Taliban dissipate very, very quickly indeed. To make it clear, the, 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 the complex network of tribes you have in that country 
means that the, past, the, the, the Taliban were able to push forward. But many of the Pashtun tribes themselves don't like the Taliban. Neither do the Uzbeks and the Tajik tribes in the north. They're now going to, uh, they flee, they've, they've fleed away. They're going to disperse. They're going to arm up. They're going to get support from the neighboring countries. And then we slide towards a bigger civil war. Well, we've talked about consequences already, but one consequence that many people expect is a flood of refugees, uh, whether it's those getting onto planes, I suppose, coming out of Kabul now, or in the years and months to come, far more trying to make it to the West, probably to Britain. Uh, do we even have a moral responsibility, given what's happened, perhaps, to let them in? Oh, we, we absolutely do. There's been a wide, you know, a, a detailed debate, quite rightly, on those Afghan uh, interpreters that worked with us. Well, now the Taliban are actually um, seeking reprisals on anybody connected with um, the, the coalition forces. Uh, and they were quite rightly then say, well, if it's no longer safe for me to live in my country because you've departed, then I want to seek asylum elsewhere. So if we think we've got a problem at the moment off Dover, just wait for the next six to 12 months of the scale of uh, migration. Uh, it'll be huge and it'll be a problem that we've created for ourselves. Yeah, some 38 million um, Afghan citizens. Um, what should Britain's policy then be towards Afghanistan now? Well, I, I'm confused as to what our policy is at the moment, other than simply to retreat and turn our backs on this. You know, there is a, I think, a diminishing window of opportunity for us to, 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 to step forward. Uh, before it, it is too late. We've got a recall of Parliament on Wednesday. I thought this was being an opportunity for uh, other options to be considered, but I now understand it's a simply a one-line whip. I wanted every MP to actually vote on whether they would supported this uh, this terrible retreat, giving up in this way, knowing that a humanitarian disaster would then unfold. Uh, but we're going to have a debate without a vote. Are there lessons in all this going further forward, Tobias, about liberal interventionism, as it was called? I mean, going all the way back, I suppose, to uh, perhaps the, the mid-90s, the sense that we need to intervene to try and rebuild the world, to try and keep it for a liberal order. Is that all gone? Because, frankly, the, the, the parents of children, of, of, of men and women who've been badly injured or killed in all this will say, it's for nothing. There is no point in doing this anymore. You know, it, it's an important point you make because we need to stay the course. It is something if we want to challenge the erosion of the international rules-based order. Our world is actually getting more dangerous and more complex, as we've discussed in the past. You know, over the next 10 or 20 years, it, life is going to get very, very bumpy indeed with the, the might of China and Russia challenging uh, our normal standards and, and values. And here we are, not able to actually hold an insurgency armed simply with AK-47s and landmines to account with a mighty military capability that NATO provided. What we failed to do, the basic schoolboy error, is stay the course. There was not a huge force, as we've touched on, in Afghanistan. It became a political football in the American presidential elections. And in the same with Iraq, same with Libya, and same with these places, you have to have that commitment. And I've made this point before. Imagine if we'd done a runner right after winning the Second World War, leaving Germany to its own devices. Where would the Iron Curtain have ended up? Right next to France. And no, no doubt, internally, there would have been forces as well to uh, uh, re-engage with you know, a Nazi's um, ideology as well. No, we still even have uh, American and British forces there today. And we've nurtured that country through decades. And like I say, Afghanistan is an important part of the world, given where it sits. We should keep it close to us. Absolutely.
You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Now, in the UK from today, fully vaccinated adults will no longer have to self-isolate for 10 days if they're told they've been in close contact with a person who has COVID. Instead, they need to take a PCR test as soon as possible, but they don't have to self-isolate while they're waiting for the result. Meanwhile, police in England and Wales will review their current firearms application processes after the mass shooting in Plymouth. Questions remain over how the gunman who killed five people and himself got his hands on a licence. Applicants for permission to own a firearm or shotgun will face social media checks now under the new guidance. And the average price of a home has fallen slightly for the first time this year. Rightmove says it's currently £337,371, and that is down by just over £1,000 compared with last month. The website says the drop is due to a cooling at the higher end of the market. Buyers' demand remains strong in the first week of August, up 56% compared to the same period before the pandemic. And now, self-isolation rules change today. As we mentioned, in England, those who are double vaccinated or under the age of 18 will no longer have to self-isolate if they come into contact with someone with COVID. It comes as a shortage of workers in key industries uh, arose from the so-called pandemic. Also, in terms of the vaccine rollout, the aim is to offer a first dose of the coronavirus jab to all 16 and 17-year-olds by the 23rd of August. That, according to the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid. Well, joining us now to discuss is Oksana Pitsik, who is teaching fellow uh, at uh, senior teaching fellow, I should say, at UCL. Oksana, welcome back to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Firstly, on the isolation rules, is this really the time to be ditching this? You um, you only have to test and you don't have to uh, self-isolate even whilst you're waiting to get that test result. Yes, I think that we do need to start thinking about uh, moving toward uh, ensuring people who have uh, double vaccines uh, you know the, the the isolation requirements, for instance, in this in, the U.S. has followed this uh, previously. So I think if we're moving in that direction. I think there's um, good reason to do so. But as you highlighted, it would be more wise to um, ask individuals to until they get the result of their PCR test uh, to ensure that they are um, isolating instead of for the full. Um, 14 days. But I do think that there has been low compliance with self-isolation overall, unfortunately. And so I think that this this is the next step where we need to be looking at ensuring that when we go back to school, more school-aged children are eligible for vaccines. So I don't think it's that um, breakthrough infections are very rare, although because of Delta, we do know that transmissibility is still a problem. But I do think a PCR test should suffice. 
So are we moving to the point? I mean, it's very hard to read the daily figures and to try and get a sense, perhaps, of the of the moves that are going on. But is it possible to take a stand back and say we are unlikely to get a major resurgence in the autumn, which has been the big fear up to now? Yes, and actually, we had predicted um, many modelers that there would be much uh, higher number of cases uh, this summer as well. Um, but we are only now really seeing that travel restrictions have loosened, that will take time to, to see the full effect, as well as um, the back-to-school search for children mixing. And uh, under the age of 16, we see that uh, JCVI has not uh, recommended uh, the use of vaccines. It will be um, mostly unvaccinated children um, that could be the uh, source of, of mass outbreaks. But what we need to be looking at is not just, uh, well, A, I would think that uh, we should be following the U.S., Canada, EU in terms of uh, vaccinating younger adolescents, as well as ventilation. Uh, New York, we have offices and schools that have HEPA filters and other types of air purifiers to ensure that they're safe places. And, and we're not really doing any of that. So that is my concern for September, is that we could see actually a, a, a big increase based on um, the, the, the outbreaks in school. Okay, so uh, school children, perhaps of most uh, concern then. What about the idea, Oksana, of herd immunity? I, I mean, this was controversial, but there was an idea that you could get herd immunity by vaccinating people. The Infectious Disease Society of America then thought that that was perhaps over 80%, even close to 90% of people would have to be vaccinated. Is herd immunity possible at this point? Well, I do think that Delta has pushed, has changed the equation. It has pushed that herd immunity threshold up higher. And what we, we do know that COVID-19 will become endemic. So what we should be measuring as a basis of success for the vaccination is p- prevention of severe illness. Um, and I think that while um, we, we might still see that uh, it is, circulating amongst the population, what we really want to ensure is that uh, there isn't the same pressures on hospitals and that people um, who are getting, uh, who who do end up contracting it, have very, very mild symptoms. Really, more than 97% of people hospitalized with COVID-19 are those who are unvaccinated. So although this, this herd immunity threshold may look quite different, what we really need to be focusing on is to close that gap between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated and overcome some of those obstacles around vaccine hesitancy. But what we seem to be coming up against is new variants gradually spread over a period of of a year and a bit now. And these variants seem to be there are question marks as to how how resistant they are to the vaccines we have. So isn't there a risk that we simply keep going like this? And each time there is a new variant, we have to have a new booster shot or something like that. I mean, this seems to be a never ending cycle. Well, yes, and there there is a. every possibility that we could come across something much nastier than Delta that proves to be vaccine resistant. I mean, that's that's within the realm of possibility. Um, Part of that reason is the fact that we haven't taken a global coordinated approach. Most of low-income countries only have 1.1% of their entire population that has been vaccinated. Meanwhile, Israel and other states are now reaching for their third uh, booster doses, while many frontline healthcare workers haven't even had uh, their first uh, shot while taking care of people who have COVID and putting their lives at risk. So if we continue to have a fragmented approach uh, where vaccine hoarding continues in high-income countries, that 
extends beyond that, you know, their political promises. Once we have the uh, everyone has a double dose, we'll move on to um, low income countries. But that the potential for that is now being diverted away from those other areas of need um, to top up those over 60 or those who are immunocompromised to do who do have um, a higher level of risk now that Delta is is in circulation and is the dominant strain in many countries. So I would say that um, what we do also need to look at is the um, how many vaccine manufacturers are being produced right now um, and the WTO barriers, uh, which the UK and um, EU are opposing to ensure that um, other vaccine manufacturers could make more vaccines and, and help speed up this process. Because the longer that we allow very high levels of transmission mm-hmm. in um, countries that are very densely populated, um, where really the variant could thrive, a new variant could thrive very easily, uh, the more that we turn to that, uh, we're kicking the ball down the road for for a worse variant, as Roger just mentioned. So, I mean, I think we need yeah. to take a long-term view of this. Yeah, indeed. I mean, and and you mentioned, you know, that a lot of places don't have enough um, vaccines. Well, um, Bloomberg numbers show that the vaccination rate in the 52 poorest places in the world is 2.6%, even though they have more than 20% of the global population. So it's really sort of out, out of kilter. I want to pick you up, though, on this idea of endemic. I mean, I think that perhaps in the West we've accepted that it's going to be endemic, but China doesn't seem to be. Or are they... Um, you know, keeping the borders closed effectively and carrying out mass testing as they are until they roll out the vaccine and then they allow it to become endemic. How do we square that, China and some other countries versus the rest of the world? Yeah, and and, and China for, has protected its population very well, along with other countries. But um, the, because there hasn't really been an agreement on what is the best strategy going forward, um, even if they do have, uh, you know, the fully very high levels of uh, vaccination, which I do think is actually possible um, with their approach towards vaccination so that they have um, a better protected population. That still doesn't mean that as soon as their borders are opened, that um, a different type of variant could be introduced. Um, and we know that even though the vaccines are highly effective, uh, at preventing severe disease, it could still be transmitting amongst population. And we know that in elderly, in general, um, vaccines are less effective than in younger and healthier people. So they have a less robust immune response. So, you know, they will be in a much better position uh, for anything that's imported in the future because they'll have that vaccine wall. But it's not without cracks, and there'll still be ways for it to transmit. Again, I think we have to almost shift uh, what we are looking at in terms of uh, measures of success so rather than just cases, really also uh, focusing on how many people develop a more severe disease. And uh, that will be something that uh, internationally, we, we, we could be living in a very two-tier world where we have air bridges for extended periods of time. Air bridges briefly between countries that are and are br- countries that are not in some ways safe. Yes, and I, well, we've seen this uh, even with the requirements around, uh, you know, there are a lot of deterrents to travel to, to red mm. list countries, um, including the fact that it, it, you are not exempt from isolation following returns from, from those regions. Um, yeah. So I think that that, again, um, essentially creates no-go zones and cuts off uh, parts of the population from the rest of the world. 
Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.